Would you open your Bibles to Psalm number 8 with me this evening? Psalm number 8. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about something that all of us are extremely interested in, ourselves. Most of our lives are spent exalting ourselves, caring for our own image, feeding ourselves, improving our bodies, our position, our comfort, and so on. But then, like every other human in history, we die. And if we really think about ourselves in proper perspective, to live for ourselves is actually kind of futile because we are so short-lived in terms of the bigger picture. When we understand ourselves, however, in light of who God is and what He has purposed for us, our lives now take on new meaning. It's no longer about me and, and my concerns. It's about God. And this is what this psalm helps us to see. What a great God He is and what a great purpose He has for us. I mean, think about how magnificent a God we have. We, we just sang about it, the very first song that we sang. In fact, it comes from this psalm here. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Scientists believe that there are 100 billion galaxies in our universe. And they're still counting. Uh, obviously, that's just an estimation because uh, it would take a long time to count up that high. But but they estimate there to be 100 billion galaxies. And when I say still counting, what I mean is they're still discovering more and more galaxies. They, don't, they haven't gotten to the edge of the universe, as if, if there really is one. And in each of those galaxies, they believe that there are about 100 billion stars. 100 billion galaxies, 100 billion stars in each galaxy. And that's a lot of stars. The closest star to us is what? The sun, right? In fact, it's so close that we benefit from its heat and its light. The sun is 92.3 million miles away from us. And if we were to build a highway to the sun and drove at 60 miles per hour for the entire way, it would take us 177 and a half years to get to the sun. And that's just one out of billion, hundreds of billions of stars that are in our galaxy. And yet the Psalms talks about God. Psalm 147.4 says that He counts the number of stars and He calls them all by name. Our God is majestic in His greatness. He is amazingly uh, vast and, and, uh, and majestic. The, the heavens... Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show His handiwork. Tonight we're going to look at the majesty of God, but we're going to look at it in relationship to ourselves. What does it mean for us? Obviously we want to see what does God's majesty mean for God, but what does it mean for us as well? Because that's what this psalm helps to show us. Psalm number 8, I'm going to read the entire psalm beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider Your heavens the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained? What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God is majestic in His holiness, in His apartness. He is vast, holy, set apart from all creation. And yet the majestic God knows us and He has a plan for us. This is the greatness of God on display. Although He is vast, although He is majestic, He is personal. This this psalm is attributed to, you can notice in the superscription underneath Psalm number 8, the psalm is attributed to David as the last five psalms were. The reason, again, that I'm selecting these psalms, so far I've gone in order from 1 to 8, but next time that I preach, it's going to be from Psalm number 11. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to see the various types of psalms. Psalm 1 was a wisdom psalm. Psalm 2 was a kingship psalm. I want you to see the different patterns, the way that they're laid out so that you can understand them as you read through them yourself. And then Psalms 3-7 through were lament psalms. Do you remember? The ones that begin with mourning and turn to trust. Here, we don't have anything like that. We We don't have anything like we've seen so far. This is what's known as a praise psalm. Very easy to spot because it's got an emphasis on praise. Instead of the emphasis on mourning, that has to turn to trust. You know, he starts out with, my enemies are against me, that sort of thing. Instead, he goes right to praising God for some great thing that he's done. And there are a number of these psalms throughout the book of Psalms. And so we need to be able to spot these and be able to see um, how they're laid out. It's not focusing on the sorrows of life, but rather joyfully reflecting on the greatness of God. And we see two very simple points in this psalm. Two very simple points. Number one, God is majestic. God is majestic, verses 1 and 2. Or we could say God is great. God is holy. He is set apart. He is unlike any other being. We know this because He has displayed His majesty in all the earth. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name, Your character in all the earth. You have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. The first way that we see His majesty is by His name. He's called Lord or Master, Jehovah. He is majestic in all the earth. That's what David says in the second line. He is Lord. He is Master over all. But He is majestic in all the earth. But not just in the earth. I mean, again, picture the earth in relationship just to our solar system. We're so small. We could fit, I think, thousands of Earths inside of the sun itself, let alone inside of other galaxies. We are just so small in comparison to the rest of the universe. And so it's not just that God is majestic over the Earth. He's majestic over, notice the next line, you displayed your splendor above the heavens. God's majesty. And then in verse 2, we see that He has established strength. Specifically through these 
infant mouths and these nursing babes, but we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a second. But you have established strength. And then the end of the verse says, you make the enemy and the revengeful to cease. God is a strong God, like we sang this morning. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of might, Lord of power, you will win the battle. That's what we sang. And here we see that he'll win the battle specifically against the revengeful. God's plans will come to pass. He will accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Look at verse 3. We see His majesty a little bit further. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Now, I just tried to give you a little bit of a glimpse, glimpse of how big our universe is at the beginning. But... Notice what the universe is like to God. Notice how He, how it's described. What kind of work is it? What, what part of His body, so to speak, does He use to create it? Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. It's like He's just there with His little the fingertips putting together this universe that is so vast. We can't even comprehend how big it is. And yet for God, it's as if He controls it and He's fashioned it with His little fingers. Now you understand, God does not have a body. God the Father does not have a body. He is spirit. This is just a way for us to understand how vast He is. The moon and the stars, He goes on to say. David says, the moon and the stars. It's amazing that you've ordained these. And before uh, the advent of the compass, the moon and the stars were very important to travel. They would need these in order to get from place to place. And so we may not have a good understanding. You know, we just kind of see lots of dots up in the air. But for the ancient traveler, it would actually meant something. That this was actually God using it to give us direction where to go. And so God is majestic. This is what theologians call God's transcendence. God's transcendence. That is His kingship, His royal authority, His sovereign control, God's transcendence, that He is far and above all of His creation. That it's hard for us to even fathom what a great God we serve. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll see this on display. That Moses understood this. The writers of Scripture or often point to God's greatness, His majesty. In fact, you go through the prophets and you're going to find this a lot, particularly in Isaiah, that they call out God for who He is, His majesty, that He is unlike anyone else. There is no one like God. God says this Himself, there, are no, there is none like Me. Here's Moses in Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore today... And take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. This is God. This is the God of God. There is none like God. Now turn to Psalm 57. Psalm number 57, verse 5. And this goes along with, uh, with a song we often sing. In fact, I think that's where the song is uh, derived. Psalm 57.5 Be exalted above the heavens, O God. 
And let Your glory be above all the earth. God, You are exalted above the heavens. You are magnificent. You are majestic. You are transcendent. You are far and above all Your creation. So here's the first thing that the psalmist, David, considers when he thinks about God. First, he thinks about God's vastness, His greatness, His majesty. But he doesn't stop there. Verses 3-8 through in in Psalm number 8. First, God is majestic. Secondly, God is personal. God is personal. Isn't this amazing? That this God who is, He knows all the stars by name. That He's created all this vast universe, and yet He is personal. We see this first of all in verse 1. Notice, O Lord, whose Lord? David says, Our Lord. He's not just some Lord who's out there and He's done lots of great things. He's our Lord. He's personal. And then notice, we see it in God's, what I would call God's self-disclosure in the second part of verse 1. You have displayed your splendor. That is, you've given it to us in such a way to, for us to understand. It's, it's God's revelation of Himself. This is done in uh, what, what theologians call uh, what they call general revelation that all people can look up at the stars and recognize that there has to be a God. There is a God. Everyone believes in their heart that there is a God, although not everyone will admit it. That's why the fool says, Psalm and Proverbs both say, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But despite the fact that God is majestic and He has revealed Himself, His people still have enemies. We still have enemies, but God is powerful enough to use even the weakest things in the world to defeat them. That's what verse 2 is about. God is such a powerful God that He makes Himself strong. He reveals His His greatness, but He also uses weak things in the world to defeat those who are strong. Look at verse 2 again. Notice, who defeats the strong? How does God establish His strength? Through the mouth of infants and nursing babes. That's what He does to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. He allows the mouth of infants. Here's what Alan Ross, a uh, person who does a commentary on the Psalms, he says this, God works through things that are seemingly weak and insufficient. But here's the great thing about God. He will use them, these seemingly weak and insufficient things, to establish His strength. God doesn't need a strong, eloquent cry of victory to defeat the adversaries. He can use a simple cry of help from the weak. This is what God uses to display His greatness. Paul understood this. He said, when I am weak, I am strong. God is strong through me. See, my weakness actually works out to God's strength. So most gladly will I, will I take glory in my own weakness so that God is strong through me, so that Christ dwells through me. I think the most powerful way that we got see God as personal in this in this uh, psalm is in verse number 4. Let's start with verse 3 first because we want to see His majesty again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained. Okay, God, you are majestic. You are vast. It's amazing how great you are. Verse 4, when we think of God in comparison to that, what is man? That... What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
David, like we should be, is amazed that God would even take thought of him. That he would know him. Not because God is, um, you know, he's forgotten something or he doesn't know everything. That's not David's point. But because the fact that God would actually take thought and care for something as small as David or any man for that matter. I mean, have you ever looked up at the sky at night or stopped in your car at a scenic overlook or stood at the edge of the ocean or in a sea of 100,000 people or sat by a busy street and watched hundreds and thousands of cars go by and wondered, who am I in comparison to all of these people that God creates? See, sometimes when we're kind of holed up in our house We don't really think about how vast God's universe is, but when we get out into the busyness of a city or into the country to see the stars at night, you think we recognize how small we are. Or even if we travel to another part of the world, it's amazing uh, to see how small we are in comparison to everything that God has made. We are so small in comparison to God. The other day, Julia and I were working on making some paper flowers for her teacher for Teacher Appreciation Week. And it took us about an hour to make two flowers out of paper. You know how long it took God to make living flowers? Our flowers weren't living. You know how long it took God to make living flowers and all the plants and vegetation on the earth? It was just the sound of His voice. He spoke it into existence. Who am I, David says, in comparison to God? God, you are majestic and glorious. There is none greater. But God, for some reason, you are personal and near. You're not far from any one of us, like Paul said in Acts 17.27. But in you, we live and move and have our existence. Friends, the God of the universe is majestic, but He is near. He is near. This is what theologians call God's imminence. God's imminence. That is, His covenant presence. That God is near us. It's not that God is far away and removed. He is. That's His transcendence. But there's another doctrine that goes hand in hand with God's transcendence, and that is His imminence. It's not just that God is far away, but that He's also near, particularly to those who call on Him. See if you can hear both God's majesty and God's imminence, His nearness in this text. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 10. So see if you can hear and see God's majesty and God's nearness. The fact that He is majestic and that He is personal. It's in this passage. Deuteronomy 10, 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. See that? Where, where is God's majesty? What verse? Verse 14. And then where is God's nearness? Verse 15, right? So verse 14, 
Behold, to, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens. Everything belongs to God. He is majestic and holy, set apart in the fact that he, there is none like Him. The earth and all that it is, is in it belong to God, verse 14. But then verse 15, But God has set His affection on your fathers, on you, to love them and to choose their descendants after them. That's these people who are hearing this word. God is far away greater than us, but God is not far removed from us. You see, several people, when they think of deity, they think of God as one who set the world in motion and then let it go, and now He's hands off. He kind of sits back and He doesn't care about it. He's got too much stuff to manage. But they've missed this important point that comes out throughout the Scriptures, which is that God is personal. God is near to His people. And God is so personal. Turn back to Psalm number 8. God is so personal, so near, so caring, that He, verses 5-8, through gives us His earth to manage. Here's where it comes down to what God has purposed for us to do. When we think of the moon and the stars and all the creation that God has made, we are amazed and we think, what, why would you ever think of us? Why would you ever include us in your plans? And God says, not only do I think of you, take thought of you and care for you, but I also give you my earth to manage, to have dominion over it. That's what verses 5-8 through eight are about. Verse 5, He gives us position. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, that is man. David saying, God, why would you ever think of man? And yet, verse 5, based on my understanding of special revelation, David is saying, you have made us, humans, lower than God. Now, in order to understand this, I think we need to understand, uh, we need to think about the alternative reading. Okay, so perhaps you've had other translations before and you thought about this in a different way or maybe you've heard a song like I have that that's, that um, sings of these words. And instead of God, it has another word. Now, how could you know that there's another word for God in verse 5 than what we have in the New American Standard? How could you know that? A different translation, what else? Okay, study Bible. There's one other thing that's very much right in front of our noses. Uh, the margin of your Bible. Okay, this is the great part about the margin. It often gives little notes. Look at the margin of your Bible under Psalm 8 5. Psalm 8 5. And what is the other option? You made him a little lower than the angels. And, and again, you're going to find this if you go to other translations because most other translations, in fact, use the word angels instead of God. So what we want to understand is. What is David talking about? Is he saying that God has made us a little lower than God or a little lower than that even, lower than the angels? And um, in fact, the New American Standard is the only translation that I know that uses the word God. Even the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament uh, apostles would use and even Jesus himself would use had the translation of angels in the Greek language. It's very clear. In fact, if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, this very verse is quoted in Hebrews 2, 7 and is translated as angels. So why would the New American Standard have this translation that we have if all the other translations have angels, 
And even the Greek translation of the Old Testament has angels. And even the quotation of it in the New Testament have angels. Let me give you three reasons why I think the New American Standard translated it correctly in this case. Again, I don't think the New American Standard is without errors. I hope hope you've seen that I pointed out several times where I think that they've gotten it wrong and places like the King James or other translations have gotten it right. But in this case, I think they are correct. Let me give you three reasons why I think it is a little bit lower than God. Number one. Um, the word that is translated for God here, this might be in the margin of your Bible too, it's, called, it's the word Elohim in the Hebrew language, Elohim. And it's a plural Hebrew word that is the word that's used for the word that's often translated God. In fact, whenever this word Elohim is used in the Old Testament, it's used 2,603 times, including here. And 2,602 of those times, it's it's translated as God. And so the first reason why I think this should also be translated as God is because this would be the only time that it's not translated God in the entire Old Testament. And that's what other translations have done when they've taken angels here. They take it as, instead of the word God, they take it as heavenly beings. And so then they translate that. They give us an English idea of angels. So... Number one, this would be the only time. If, they want, if David wanted to use the word angels, he would use the word that every other author of the Old Testament uses, and that is the word malachim. Okay? And he doesn't use that here. Instead, he uses Elohim, which always refers to God. I would suggest it does here as well. Number two, the context doesn't compel us to understand this word to mean angels. The context. Okay, So first the use of the word in other parts of the Old Testament. Second, the context. In the context, we're talking about God's majesty, God's nearness, God's creation, but nothing of angels. Now, if we wanted to say, well, God was talking about creation, in fact, He's going to talk about the sheep and the oxen and beasts of the field and so on, so maybe He's just talking about some of the things that happened during creation week. That may be an argument against the second point. But let me give you a third point before you uh, make a a decision for yourself. Number three, I would suggest to you that angels were made lower than us. Theologically speaking, angels were made lower than us. Think about it this way. When When were the angels created, before or after humans? Any idea? Okay, there's nothing explicit in the in the creation narrative that talks about angels, but most theologians think that they were made on one of the first few days. And so angels were made first. Now, why do I say that that means that we, were, we are actually above angels? Well, think about the creation week, how it goes. Okay, they, God says, you know, let there be light, and there was light, and these days start going by really quickly until you get to the sixth day. You know how long it takes for, for God to explain or Moses to explain how long the sixth day happens. starts out in a couple of verses, but then in chapter 2, it's all about God's creation of man and woman. It slows down because man, human beings, are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. So angels are really, they're not even mentioned in creation. Not that they're unimportant, but I would suggest to you that humans are, are in the creation um, uh, preference or order are actually greater than 
humans are actually greater than angels. Think about it this way. What do angels live to do? I mean, ultimately, they live to serve God. We live to serve God. But who do they live to serve, specifically? They live to serve humans, don't they? Right? You have all sorts of examples of this throughout the Scriptures where angels are coming down to serve humans. Have you ever found in one place where a human serves an angel? Okay, so I would suggest to you that, that um, man was made above angels and actually below God. Another reason I think that, that man was made above angels, that is, that, that we are, and don't take this as proud or anything like that, but, but that we are superior to angels in God's mind, is that who did Christ come to die for? Were there not fallen angels? And yet God, or, or God did not send His Son, Christ, to go into the angelic race, to die for angels, to draw them back to God, did He? Instead, He took on human flesh. So there's another reason why I think that angels were made lower than us. Now, to talk about Hebrews 2.7, we're not going to go there, but Hebrews 2.7 does translate this verse as angels. But I would suggest to you that it's only because the Greek translators of the Old Testament translated it that way. And they're just trying to stay... Um, consistent with what the the Greek translation said, because that's what everyone would have understood. Their their job, the the writer of Hebrews was not seeking to correct the Old Testament translation that they had in circulation. Rather, it was just to state it as it was to show God Christ's superiority there. The point there is that earth is under the rule of men, and so I would suggest to you that for those three reasons. The way that the New American Standard has it translates, translates it is correct. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. So the first way that God has given us a great responsibility, he's majestic, far off, but he is near and personal, and he's given us uh, responsibility for his earth. First, by position. Second, by honor. Second part of verse 5. And you crown him... God, you crown him with glory and majesty. The glory and honor that belong solely to God have been gifted, have been entrusted to us to use for his purposes. God has crowned us with glory and honor. He's shared some of his glory, in a sense, with us. And the way that he's done that is by giving us, verses 6 through 8, management of his earth. He's given us management of his earth. Look at verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. Okay, so we have the land animals, verse 7. Then the birds and the fish, verse 8. And this is consistent, obviously, with Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God, God created man in his own image. In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue. Have dominion over it. Rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, verse 8, right here. And then over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the beasts in verse 7. So God has is far high and lifted up. He is vast. He is amazingly majestic, and yet He is near. And He entrusts the earth to our care, to our dominion. And I hope you recognize that the, the earth has not been perfectly run by us and it won't be until Christ comes 
He is the pinnacle of, obviously, the human race because He is God. But, but until that time, we have a responsibility to have dominion over the earth. This is what God has entrusted to us. And so what should our response be to all this? Well, our response should be the very same thing, the very same way that the psalm started. How did it start? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And then look at how it ends. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Lord, You are majestic, holy, set apart from all Your creation. You are our Lord. And You're majestic over all things. And so we praise You. The focus of the psalm has been primarily on uh, the glory of God. But as He uses the glory of man to accomplish His purposes, all this glory and honor should not go to our head like, oh, we've been entrusted with the earth. We've been given this great position and great honor by God. We must be great creatures. No. It should direct our glory, our praise back to God. That God, You are great and majestic in all the earth. The psalm ends the way it begins to make sure that in all the glory and honor that we've received from God by being allowed to manage His earth, we don't lose sight of to whom the praise belongs, and that is to God. Let me leave you with two points of application from this psalm. Number one, be regularly amazed at God's thought of you. Be regularly amazed at God's thought of you. Don't ever take that for granted that, that, that God thinks of you and cares for you. Consider how great He is. When I say great, I mean vast, amazing, majestic. And consider your smallness in comparison to Him. We're told by our society that as humans we were just an accident. You know, the world, the universe was swirling around and it regurgitated us into some lucky mistake that turned out to be us. That's kind of my interpretation of it. But the Bible tells us that we were made by God and that we were the pinnacle of His creation and made to serve Him and to know Him. And that means that God takes special care, special thought of us. Even though that He is majestic and glorious, He cares about us. He cares about you. And not only does He care about you, but He's given you responsibility to care for His creation. He's, in a sense, delegated the responsibility to take care of His creation. Think about when you... Um, are in a position to delegate responsibility to someone who is incompetent. Right? It's difficult to do. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to mess up my, my product. I don't want them to do it. And yet God, the God of the universe who is perfect, has gifted to us the responsibility to care for His creation even though we are incompetent in comparison to Him. And yet He does it. He's made us a little lower than Himself. Not that we can become gods. Don't think that. Okay, But God's design is to put all of His creation under our feet. And He will do that ultimately through the human par excellence, Jesus Christ. Look around. Obviously, we haven't done a good job of dominioning the earth. We need someone else to come and rule over it. And He will rule with a rod of iron. And He will set us on thrones next to Him, Jesus the Christ, and we will reign with Him. That's what Revelation 2 and 3 
uh, encourage us to look forward to the reign of Jesus Christ. Then number two, God's majesty and nearness ought to lead us to great praise. God's majesty, His transcendence, and His nearness, His eminence, ought to lead us to great praise. Because of our position and because of our understanding of God's special revelation, then we can offer voluntary praise to God. O God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. As human beings, we have the great privilege of standing as God's representatives on earth. And we represent earth in heaven. I mean, think of Job, for example. He is a representation of God's great handiwork. We are the same. So in a great way, we stand between those two. Think about this. When you, when you consider your smallness, okay, when you're making a paper flower, when you're doing something that seems so menial, that seems to have very little, if any, consequence to what's going on in the rest of the universe, think about yourself in relationship to God and then think about the fact that God cares for you. This should lead to great praise. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, when we consider what You have done for us, who You are, and the fact that You would care for us, and the fact that You would gift us with responsibility to care for Your creation, we are amazed at Your grace. Who are we in comparison to You? Who are we in comparison to the rest of creation? And yet You've done so. And so we can think of nothing else but to praise You and to take great seriousness with this responsibility that we have. Thank You for this privilege that You have gifted to us and help us to manage Your resources well. Help us to be good administrators of what You have gifted to us. Help us not to take that for granted. And help us to never to, to take for granted the thought, Your thought of us. That You would give Your greatest possession, Jesus Christ, for our sake. Give Him over to death. He lovingly did that for our sake so that we could have life. And what a great display of Your mercy on us. We want to magnify Your glory. We want to spread Your fame. And what greater way can we do that than by sharing our hope and our joy and our confidence in the risen Christ. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.